Hello and welcome to the much-anticipated Baggies Broadcast Summer Series sponsored by Adoption at Heart. Now, we've been talking about this for weeks and it's finally here. Over the coming weeks, myself and my uh, my mate and Baggies correspondent Joe Massey will be bringing you some very special guest Baggies Broadcast episodes to give you your poddy fix, your football fix and your Baggies fix over the summer when uh, not an awful lot's going on. Uh, now, Joe, before I introduce today's guest, we have got some belters lined up for this series, haven't we? Some really top ex-Albion people who are going to keep you entertained over the next few weeks um, we really have mate um, we really have as we sit here now we've recorded the vast majority of them I've got to say every single one of them um, has been an absolutely belting guest every one of them has given some well has told us some unbelievable stories have given us some unbelievable insight um, hats off to you mate you, 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 you got all these guests you absolutely smashed it out the park um, you really did and yeah, I think, I really, really hope people are going to enjoy listening to them. I think they will. Um, I've got to be honest, I'm really proud of them. Um, and I genuinely believe people are going to really enjoy them. Well, I can't take all the credit. I might have done the ringing round and the pestering, and I'm, there's probably a few ex-Albion players who think I'm a right pain in the backside at the moment, sort of trying to get them on the on the summer series. But as I said to someone on social media the other day, it's uh, it's your little uh, your little black book of contacts who've, uh, who've who've helped us out here. So Joe Massey's uh, someone called it the Bible, the Baggies Broadcast Bible. Right. It's been uh, it's been coined. So um, so yeah, but we've got some we've got some cracking guests lined up. Before we introduce today's first episode, um, we were going to put a couple of others out before this, as some of you Baggies fans will have known. You'd have seen on social media we were sort of firing out a few clips of sort of the early episodes. Um, so we're going to start with Hal Robson, Carno and Sam Field, as you all know. Um, however, we had a, a, an important board meeting um, at Baggy's Broadcast Towers, didn't we, Joe? Um, and we've decided that this first episode was just so good. Not that the others haven't been good, they've been really good, but this was just so top draw, insightful, and you know got a great reaction when we put a clip out that we're going to go with this one first. Um, so... Without further ado, just introducing today's first episode is with former West Brom Sporting and Technical Director and the man who signed some incredible players and kept West Brom ticking for many, many years, Dan Ashworth. Joe, have you calmed down since we recorded this? Because you were ecstatic once we did, well, before and after recording. Um, I, I haven't calmed down, really. As we as we speak now, we recorded this yesterday. Um, I've got to be honest... I was so excited to talk to him. Everyone who listens to the Baggies broadcast knows um, I'm a massive England fan. Um, absolutely massive England fan. But So to speak to Dan Ashworth was just incredible. To sort of get to talk to him about everything he did at Albion um, was absolutely remarkable. And I think what really struck me about him is, is his career. I mean, look, there's some brilliant stories in this podcast about the players he signed and yeah, how he managed to discover them and stuff. There's so, there's so much... Um, I think fans are going to just uh, they'll be like me like me and you were we were hanging on his every word weren't yeah. we um, but yeah his, his journey has been absolutely fascinating um, to the point where he's got to today which is without doubt the number one technical director in the country um, but that journey is absolutely fascinating I think before we started I was so excited um, to speak to him and I kind of had a word to myself saying this probably can't live up to my expectations because I, my expectations are that high, but it absolutely smashed through them. Um, he was that good. He was that knowledgeable. He was that charming, really. He was just absolutely fascinating. Um, so, yeah, I just we, we decided to get, go over it a little bit earlier than planned, but I think it's just because 
Albion fans are going to enjoy listening to this so much. I think I think we have to get it out there. Joe Massey's Dan Ashworth's number one fanboy. Um, absolutely wow. love, loves the guy, but he was fantastic. It, it is you've, you'd have seen the clips we've put out over the last few days. Um, it was it was really brilliant. So just um, just before we, we, we kick off for the episode, um, just a note on the other pods. You might there might be a couple of references on the Hal Robson Carno and Samfield podcast of oh this is our first episode, second episode. Obviously, ignore that when you listen to it. The majority of it is still all relevant. Um, but yeah, we've decided to go early with this one just because it was a it was a, a top top top. As Paul Merson would say on Sky, top, 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 top podcast. Um, so here you go, without further ado, here it is, when the Baggies broadcast met Dan Ashworth. Dan Ashworth, welcome to the to the Baggies broadcast. Thanks very much for your time. How are you doing? Yeah, all good, thank you. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on, guys. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, me and Joe have been talking about this episode for a while. We see this as a, as a real coup for the Baggies broadcast. We've had sort of former players, former managers, but... Sort of aside from playing staff, it's hard to sort of deny many have had sort of a bigger impact on the club in, in sort of the modern era. Um, and we're all going to just just touch on that and talk about that today, really, because obviously you're still well thought of at the at the Hawthorns, Dan, by uh, by the fans for the for the job you did, really. So um, we're going to go right back to the to the very start. Um, we'll obviously go through your technical sport and technical director period, but right back to the very start, the start of your Albion journey. Sort of how did your journey sort of in football begin, Dan? I believe we were sort of professional at Norwich originally yeah. yeah I was a failed player really Johnny so um uh, played a few games in the obviously youth team reserve team at Norwich City but uh dropped dropped out of it and ended up going to university playing some non-league football uh trained to be a PE teacher so did the the circuit down in the in the southeast so played for Crawley for a bit Hastings Town there's a team called St Leonard's which um had a, the first ever rollover lottery winner, I think, uh, own it. Um, so uh, Eastbourne Borough, who were Langley Sports at the time. So he sort of played down at uni and then when I, I, I taught for two or three years as well. Um, and then went over to America um, and I was player coach over in America for uh, about a year and a half. And then my ex-academy manager at Norwich City had just started at Peterborough at the inception of the academies, I think in 1998, um, and wanted a qualified teacher and coach to go in and work in the academy in Peterborough. So I moved back from the States and uh, and started in uh, 1998 at Peterborough United and then sort of moved on from there. Yeah, what was, just give us a bit of a flavour of what Dan Ashworth, uh, the footballer, was like, what sort of position did you play? What sort of player were you? Rubbish. <laughs> uh, tried hard, uh, athletic. I, I, I was quick. Um, and played uh, sort of right winger, right back, right wing back. I suppose in the modern day would have been um, would have been ideal for me. Te- technically short, but uh, enthusiastic and and quick. Um, that was probably about it, really. Yeah, oh, brilliant. And and when you sort of so you got that role at at Peterborough, um, was it was the ambition always there to to, to work in in football in a professional capacity, Dan? Once you're in the states and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I, do you know what? I've, I've been so lucky. I, I just loved sport, Johnny. Um, and so when um, my my dreams of becoming a professional footballer were dashed, uh, I knew I wanted just to stay in in sport. And I think like many young people at the time, didn't couldn't tell you this is the career I want. And certainly looking back then, you know, sporting and technical director didn't even exist. Certainly not in England. Um, so I just knew I love sport. I love football. Um, and sort of, oh, OK, I'll go and try to be a PE teacher. Was lucky enough to be able to play semi-pro. Um, 
and uh, and, and worked as a PE teacher for a number of years and and, and loved it. I, I absolutely love it. I sort of tell people that I used to spend sort of 60, 70% of my life with a bib on playing some sort of sport, you know, volleyball or basketball or football or rugby or cross country or whatever, you know, as a, as a teacher. So um, really enjoyed that. Um, had the opportunity to go over the state to the states. It was pre-children, um, you know. So it's just a time as a, a as young people do, you know, to to go and see a different country, different culture, go and do something different while staying in football. Um, I'd done my coaching badges uh, as a seventeen-year-old. Actually, you were supposed to be eighteen to do them, but um, in Norfolk, I, I was sort of given a bit of dispensation, I think, uh, to, to do it. So I think I probably realised fairly early that I wasn't going to have a career as a player. So um, I, I, I took the coaching badges early. Uh, I remember I used to volunteer to take a local under-11 team on a Sunday morning and things like that to, from the age of 17, 18. My brother Paul was youth development officer at Cambridge. So any sort of university or school holidays that I got, I'd go and work with him at Cambridge United and go and work, you know, with the with the young, inevitably during school half terms and holidays, the young players come in. So I would go and work with young players um, and go and help Paul, really. And again, loved it. Um, and, and when the opportunity came to come back from America and go full time into football, um then I decided I, I wanted to take it. So luckily, you know, I got the opportunity at Peterborough United, did three years there, then three years at Cambridge. And I think what that did does give you is a fantastic grounding on, you know, it was a small staff. We didn't have much money. You had to muck in and do everything from driving the minibus to coaching the under nines, youth team, reserve team, um, you know, pretty much every team across the uh, across the spectrum. And it just gives you a really good ground in the different age groups and, uh, and coaching and, and what it's like to work with no money as well. Um, so thoroughly enjoyed that time. Yeah, was that a case of you had to get all your badges? So you got had to get up to was the pro license around back then in the, in the in that time? Yeah, so I did, yeah, I did my um, I did my what was the old FA prelim when I was seventeen. I then did the B license when I came back to Peterborough, and then the A license, um, which you needed to be academy manager at the time. Blow it's a long time ago now. I'm trying to remember right. So. Yeah, did my A license then when I was at Peterborough, and then when I moved to West Brom, sort of, yeah, I went then to Cambridge, then went to West Bromwich Albion um, as academy manager. Then uh, the club supported me in doing my pro license, um, <clears throat> partly because I was an academy manager and moving perhaps into a bit more of a leadership position. So I did the pro license then as academy manager at West Bromwich Albion, and, and so obviously sort of held it ever since. Yeah, and and just uh, it brings us nicely on to to Albion. Obviously, you're at Cambridge, and then your break with Albion sort of came. Was was it A.D. Boothroyd who, who took you to West Brom? I know he. Did you know him from Peterborough at the time? Is that how yeah. it like? Yeah. So right. there, there's several rumours, such as he was the best man at my wedding and things like that, which wasn't the case at all. <laughs> um, so I worked with A.D. at Peterborough. So A.D. had just finished as a player, so he started that same summer as me. Actually, he'd broken. He had a nasty leg break. At Peterborough, and he'd start, and he he took seventeens. Back in those days, the uh, used to be seventeens and nineteens rather than under eighteens. So seventeens and nineteens. Aidy took the seventeens, um, and I came in to work in the academy. Um, and then after about a year and a half, maybe two years, he left and went to be a youth team under nineteen coach in Norwich City. So I worked with him for a, for a couple of years, stayed in touch. Um, he then left Norwich City and moved to West Bromwich Albion. I think in the summer. And then um, after about six or seven months, wanted somebody to come in and run the eight to 16s um, at, uh, at the Albion. So um, I came for an interview, um, got the job and then started in the March, I think it was. Um, 
And then in the June that, of that particular year, AD left and went to be first team coach at Leeds United. So I only I only worked with him for about three months. Um, and then Jeremy Peace, who was the chairman at the time, and, and Mark Jenkins uh, gave me the opportunity to be sort of acting head of youth um, and then try and work in that next year to, to get us uh, academy status, build the indoor area, et cetera. Um, and so I, I, I did that for a year and then became uh, academy manager at West Bromwich Albion. And what was that like making that move? Obviously, you'd worked at Peterborough and Cambridge, you were sort of lower, lower down clubs. Was it... Um... Sort of, could you see the, a big difference in coming to a club like, like West Brom? Yeah, in some ways, yes. In other ways, no. Um, so when, I remember coming for my interview and I pulled up at the Hawthorns and just thought, wow, this stadium is amazing. You know, just like, whoa. And um, West Brom and Jalbyn were in the championship at the time. Gary Megson was the manager. Yeah. Um, and got promoted that, that year. Um, and then... Gary left in the October, I think, of my first year and Brian came in. Would that be about right? Yes, I think so. Um, yeah. And Brian Robson came in. So, you know, so obviously size of club, size of the stadium, stature of club, fan base, etc. Obviously a, a, a big step change. But I have to say the youth policy wasn't because both, uh, Peterborough were an academy, uh, had academy status. West Bromwich Albion didn't. Uh, Cambridge was centre of excellence, as were West Bromwich Albion. But I remember in, in the early days, you know, we didn't have enough. Uh, players or kit to run a team at every age group. Um, we used to train. Um, one of my first jobs was to try and find us training venues. I remember one of them was Willingsworth High School. Um, and we used to train on the AstroTurf there um, with holes in the fence. Um, you know, you, you, I remember pushing three maths tables together in the school classroom to act as a physio bench. Um, and my first ever session was on a Tuesday night. And in that session, we, it, I took the under 12s was uh, Kamar Roof and Romain Sawyers. Oh, um, and, they, and they were in that, in that group. And I took the under-12s for the rest of the season. Um, Kamar was under 11 at the time. He was playing up at age group. Um, Adil Narby, I think, was, would have been a year younger. Um, who else was in there? Um, Paul Downing, I think, was there as well. Uh, obviously, um, his brother Lee's uh, still on the coaching staff there now as well. So, you know, that first ever Tuesday night session, I remember the session vividly, and uh, and Remain and Kamal were in there in the in the group. But the facilities were were really poor. We you know yeah. we didn't have a training ground. Uh, we used to beg, steal, and borrow, and 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 hire local schools and and facilities, which you know where you look now, where the clubs come to. You know, and the and the you know the indoor area, the the 4G pitch that they have at um at the Hawthorns, that training ground, and of course the expansion they made to the to the training ground at Aston, next to Aston University, I should say, um is it's just come on in leaps and bounds. But in the earlier years, the the facilities and the setup was probably worse than Cambridge and Peterborough. Yeah, it's interesting because they'd already been in the Premier League at that time. The season, I think they had, I think it would have been a couple of seasons before you you got there. And I know people have spoke about the past Albion sort of had success quite quickly. Was that a lot of maybe what it was down to, you know, that they didn't expect to have sort of promotions and, and be in the Premier League you know, in those years before and those things yeah. maybe got left behind a little bit? Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Obviously, I wasn't there. And I think, um, you know, when when clubs get promoted, obviously the focus is on the first team and rightly so, you know, and not all clubs want to invest in and put the money into, into the youth policy. Now, obviously, it was something that was important to Jeremy Peace. Um, but it takes time, um, you know, and, he, and I think when he came in as, as chairman, realised that, you know, if you can produce your own, certainly in, a, in an area, um, you know, 
in and around the Midlands, Birmingham's a big city and there's lots of young players that are uh, within an hour radius, which was which at the time was the um, was was the radius for academy status. Um, it makes financial sense to put some investment into your youth policy and develop your own young players. And that's something that Jeremy wanted to do. But like I say, it takes time. You had to build the indoor area. You had to get a training ground. You had to get the staff right. You had to then apply for and get your academy status. Um, so it was always something I think that was on the agenda. But you don't you don't just turn into an academy overnight when you get promoted. It takes a number of years, really, for clubs to get all the, everything, all, all their ducks in a row and um, and be able to, to get the status and uh, and start to develop young players. I'm sure that was a, a lot of hard work over quite a few years then to, to get to sort of where it was when you when you left West Brom, which was, I think, was it a Category 1 academy at the time? Yes. Um, yeah, when, when I left, uh, my, my my job initially, obviously, for the first five or six years at, at the Albion was was academy manager. And I loved that job. You know, I, I was I, I was and I am passionate about um, helping young people develop. Uh, obviously, my career has been in helping young footballers and coaches develop, but but certainly giving people an opportunity and and trying to put systems and pathways in place that allows people to to reach their potential, um, and to set up an academy at, at you know such a prestigious club and and see some young players come through um, was something that you know I was immensely proud to be a part of. But the credit has to go to you know people like Jeremy. Um, who, who invested? And I remember the indoor area, full-size indoor area. I think it might have been the biggest in the country when when we first built it. And Brian Robson fully supporting it as first team manager. You know, Brian Brian was no. If you're going to build an indoor area, build a build a big one, build a, the best we can. Uh, investing in academies and young players is is important. So had the support of Brian as well. So you know, the the whole club has really backed uh, driving into an academy. You know, driving to academy status and Cat One. And just just before I sort of Joe comes in and starts to sort of stuff like the technical when you took on the technical director role in terms of relationships it sounds like you had quite a good one with with Jeremy Peace there you know you you sort of worked quite well you well, you would have worked quite closely with him for for a number of years yeah so I worked closely with Jeremy for for ten years um, chairman as I call him not Jeremy <laughs> um, and yeah I, I, he he ran a fantastic football club. And I know that he got some criticism at times for, you know, not spending enough and all those things that the fans perceive is the right thing to do. But Jeremy's strapline, really, and he wasn't a public person, you know, he kept himself to himself. Um, his strapline was that the club will always be here. Everybody will always get paid uh, under my watch. Um, and so consequently, we, 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 he ran the club under some, you know, some fairly... Um, tight financial constraints and I don't mean tight as in money tight I mean you know the, the rails were tight in that look these this is the remit this is this is our what we've got to spend this is what I'm willing to to risk this is what I'm not willing to risk and I'm not prepared to let the club go into into huge debts and put the club at risk not under my tenure and under my stewardship and and you know therefore we would invest in young players we'd invest in the academy we'd invest in players from slightly different areas I'm sure we're going to come on to that now rather than paying you know to, to buy highly expensive not only in transfer fees but also on wages players that had already played in the Premier League because they tend to be very expensive and that yeah. wasn't a model that Jeremy wanted to do and I, I applaud him for doing that and does that put a lot of, you know just cut Joel's chat with the technical director stuff does that obviously puts more pressure on you to go out and find the the players that fit within the with what Jeremy was sort of willing to spend really well it does and it doesn't Johnny because I think all all you want in my job now, um, we'd sort of jump from academy manager, but all you want in my job now is clarity. So when you're going out scouting, if you're looking for a centre forward nowadays, you can spend 100 million 
right? Or or nothing. And if you're looking as a as a technical director and and you're trying to find players that are good enough for your team, you know, and you're saying to your scouts, right, find us a centre forward. The first thing is say, okay, well, what we're we looking for to spend, what can we spend? Now, if if your maximum budget wage is X and your transfer fee is Y, or you're only doing freeze and loans, at least you know. What what's the worst? incredibly frustrating is if you don't have those parameters and that guideline of look this is roughly where we're going to be you can you're scouting the whole world um and and you know every single pretty much every single player so i'm exaggerating slightly but you know to to have that clarity of look this is all we're going to spend so look for players within that remit it just gives you clarity so it actually helps i think yeah yeah, sorry, Joe. Stepping onto your your questions and toes a little bit. That's what no, that's I'm fine, pass, you no, no problem, so. pass you over to Joe. Um, Dan, if we just look at 2007, the, the beginning of it, if you like, the football landscape. We sort of had Alex Ferguson at Manchester United, Arsene Wenger at Arsenal. These managers, obviously, huge personalities. You sort of, from the outside in, you sort of assume they did everything, if you like, in terms of recruitment and coach the team. What was the football landscape like at that time? When did you first start to think about a technical director role? Well, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't think about it at all. So um, I remember it vividly. So it was in the December. Again, I've got my years muddled up, um, but it was in the December and um, Tony Mowbray was the manager and uh, we were in the championship. And Jeremy Peace, the chairman, called, just called me and said, uh, can you come and see me at two o'clock? So uh, I said, yeah, no problem. And I just thought it was my monthly update on the academy. So I went down to his office at the training ground and said, look, I've spoken to Tony. We'd like you to, to be sporting a technical director. Um, I, I said, what is it? And he said, uh, right, OK, well, here's the role. And there's a couple of things I still use. And, and you know, Jeremy was a visionary, I have to say. And I know he'd spent a fair bit of time um, looking at clubs across Europe and felt that he wanted uh, the role to sort of sit in between the, the the board and the football side. He said, look, these are the things I this is what I'd like you to do. He said, this is how I see the role. There's four main areas. One's player recruitment. One's uh, first team, men's first team. Uh, one is the academy and one is medical and sports science. And they are the four departments I'd like you to bring together. I'd like you to align. I'd like you to get some consistency of thought across the club um, and, um, you know, work closely with with Tony at the time and myself and uh, and just try and, you know, devise and get a strategy that West Bromwich Albion, it would put us in good stead for, for years to come and just get a bit of... Um, uh, I, I suppose thoroughness around all of those processes. So we, we just make good decisions. And he said, um, and again, I never forget this phrase. He said, I said, okay, but I don't really know what the, the job is chairman. And he said, well, look, you, you, you can, uh, you know, sort of um, mold it to, to suit you. He said, the academy bit you'll, you'll find easy. I'd been an academy manager for 12 years. I'm not saying that job is easy, but obviously I'd had a, quite a bit of experience mm. before that 12 years in youth development, player recruitment, you'd still recruit in the academy. So actually, you know, when you look at the player profiles and who's a good player and who isn't, but the numbers change, you know, you're buying players and the level of salary is different. Dealing with Tony Mowbray, you know, I'd never been a first team manager, nor do I want to be, but there to, you know, to support Tony. Um, and medical and sports science, again, I've got a degree um, in, in physical education where you touch on a bit of medical and sports science, far from being an expert, but, you know, not a little bit of insight. And obviously from a, an academy point of view, you had a medical and sports science department. So I said, look, I just, I just don't know what the job is. He said, well, look, ha- have a go about it. He said, have a go at it. And he said, my my rationale is, he said, I want a suit that can wear a tracksuit and a tracksuit that can wear a suit. 
Mm. He said, so I want, he said, I want you to be able to have the football conversations with the first team manager, with the players, with the agents, with the academy parents, with the academy players, with the academy staff. He said, but I also want someone who can put a suit on and come into the boardroom on match days, but also to present strategy and budgets and understand, you know, long-term philosophy and be able to put together some sort of plan um, that that would uh, would help us medium to long term. Um, so we'd like you to do it. So I said, okay, can I think have a think about it? And he said, yeah, yeah, I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> so he didn't give me long to think about it. So I, I just said, look, I just I really don't know what the job is, but I tell you what, what I'll do is I'll do it until the end of the season. Uh, and these are the conditions. So I was a bit nervous negotiating with the chairman. So he said, okay, what conditions? And I think he expected me to say finances, but I didn't. I said. Um, uh, I have it in writing that if you don't like me doing the job or I don't like the job, I can have my academy manager's job back at the end of the season. So he said, uh, yeah, OK, done. So I had in writing that I was a sporting and technical director until the end of the season, the June or whatever it was. And um, either one of us could go, no, fine. It's not quite worked out. You can have your academy manager's back job back. Um, so we backfilled. Mark Harrison stepped up to academy manager for six months. I became sporting and technical director without knowing what the job was and stayed there ever since. Amazing. Did you can start? I just ask, can I just oh, ask you, was that flattering in that meeting that Jeremy Peace probably, West Brom never had a role like this, neither has a lot of football clubs in the country at that time. Was it quite flattering that he put faith in you to, to take on such a role, even though you didn't really know what it was, was all about? Yeah. I, of course it was, you know, he's a bright, bright guy, you know, and he doesn't suffer fools. Um, so, yeah, of course it was flattering for him to, you know, ask me to do that sort of role. I think the excitement was, like you said, it's new. Nick, Nick Hammond was doing the role in at Reading at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it came to work at the Albion uh, a while later. And um, Frank Arneson had sort of done a bit of it at Chelsea and Tottenham and Damien Camoli uh, had, had done a bit at Tottenham, but it, it wasn't established in this country. For sure. And as you said at the start of this question, really, is that it was the managers ran everything. And I'm sure, again, I'm sure we'll get to that. But, you know, the role of a Premier League manager has changed so much that I don't think one person can do everything mm. nowadays. You know, they need support in various different things. Um, so, yes, it was flattering. And also Tony Mowbray, you know, Jeremy had said to, to me, look, I've spoken about to Tony and we both think that you'd be good at it. You've got a really good work ethic, um, you know, deal with people, um, honest, reliable and we'd like you to have a go. So yeah, it, it was really flattering, but not, not so flattering in the way that I just didn't know what a job was. So I've been offered in a new job and I had no idea what it was. I was going to ask about Tony Mowbray because I mean, if we're being honest, there's some managers who probably would have walked out the door at that point, but he was obviously very receptive to it and, and could see that it would be like a fruitful partnership. Yeah, I believe, I don't know, but I believe Jeremy discussed it with Tony and they both thought it would be, you know, I'd be a good fit for, for, for the role. And I, and I think also one of the things is I'm clearly not a threat to Tony. Uh, and I think sometimes, you know, and I understand it, but from a manager's point of view, if I'd been an ex-manager, um, you think, mm, OK, you know, what, what what does he want this role for? Does he actually want my role? Uh, yeah. and, I, and I didn't and don't. Um, and then obviously I'd work with Tony for a period of time as a academy manager. So hopefully gain some his, his trust as well that, you know, fundamentally um, he could trust me and I, I'm an honest person, which I am, you know, and I wasn't there to try and... Um, uh, devalue him or undermine him in any way, shape or form, but, you know, to support him. And I see this job very much as supporting a ma- the manager. But at the time, I didn't really know what it was. So, you know, Tony helped me. I, I, I'd like to think I helped Tony. And then between us, um, obviously, the, 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 the role and the club sort of pushed on from there. 
So we'll get we'll get into some of the signs if that's all right because I think the most I mean the thing that stands out really is just where your signings came from. It was all all over the globe, really absolutely incredible. You, you said to us just before we started recording, I think it was is it is it Kim Don Hun and and Graham Dorans were your first signings? Is that right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Kim. Talk Dehon. to us about those two. Kim Dehon and Graham Dorans. So. Um, uh, uh, do you know what? It, it, there's a great phrase in it. Success has got many fathers. So, you know, there's lots of people that would claim the good players were down to them, but forget about the bad players. Um, I don't. There's no one person that's ever makes the decision on players in or out, you know, good or bad. Um, you do it as a team. You make a decision. Ultimately, as sporting and technical director, the, the, the final blame comes down to me. Um, but you do them all as a team. And each one of them has got their own story that we could spend hours for. But but Graham had been down on and spent a few days training. So he came down again. My, my, my memory is a little bit fuzzy, but he came down in the December and trained for a while, I think because of, of a contact Tony had at Livingston from when he worked at Hibs. Okay. So Graham that came down, spent a few days. Uh, Kim DeHaan, we'd seen. Oh, I just can't remember. I can't remember how we'd seen. But remember, I only started in the December. So I'd be lying to you then. You said we'd set up a series of, you know, comprehensive scouting networks. Well, that's what I was going to ask that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so we tried to do Graham and the deal was about £100,000 mm. and he stayed at Livingston on loan for the rest of that season. And I remember doing that. And then Kim DeHaan was alone as well. I remember sort of transfer deadline day. I think they both eventually got done. I was thinking, right, well, I've lost both deals. This is my first ever transfer window. <laughs> I haven't signed anyone and I've managed to lose both deals, but they both came through right at the death. Um, and we did both. Kim DeHaan was, was here with us on loan for a period of time, uh, was good footballer, didn't, didn't quite work. So he wouldn't want be down one of the success stories, but also wasn't a massive failure. Um, and then Graham came in at the end of that year, played a bit in the Premier League under Tony, but then, you know, was, was outstanding the following year. Uh, as we got back out of the championship, I think I think scored nearly 20 goals. I can't remember exactly, but was was outstanding. So, um, yeah, that was that was my first experience in a, in a window. And that summer, you'd have brought in Jonas Olsen. Um, I, won't, I won't go for every player signed, obviously, but just obviously he was an absolute warrior. How, how did you discover him? How did you find him? Yeah, so he's at NEC Nijmegen. So again, it was yeah. just watching games, really. You know, we, we had we, we had some scouts. Tony Spearing came in and joined us as European scout. Bobby Hope was there at the time, who was you know was our, was our domestic scout. Uh, scout. We had um, Lee Darnborough and Johnny Gibson were working for, in a, from an analysis capacity, and we just got through DVDs um, and and got out on the road. Uh, we knew once we got promoted, we were going to have to sort of invest in the squad quite heavily. We, we signed a lot of players, but probably got the balance wrong, if I'm being being honest, um, of, of the squad. So, you know, Borja Valero was one that we signed that summer as well. Um, I'd seen him. I went over to see him. Was it Real Mallorca? Yeah, Real Mallorca. I remember Tony going over to see him in a sort of pre-season tournament where they played three or four different teams. And we all really liked him. Um, we ended up signing him for five or six million euros, which I think was a club record fee at the time. Um, and they all, I know you asked me about Jonas, but, they, you know, they they all went, came through a similar uh, way in, in that particular mm. summer, which was recommendations, uh, getting out and watching games, watching DVDs. Uh, and between the scouting team, Tony, Mark Venus was, was really instrumental with Tony when it comes to recruitment as well. Um, just trying to get the right players that we could either afford or would fit, you know, Stony Tony style of play that we could come in and, and and enhance the squad. 
So these players are found based on the talent of you and your, and your scouting team. Is that fair to say? Because I'm guessing everyone's putting in the hours, aren't they? Everyone's watching these DVDs. Everyone's getting out to games. But it's, it's that eye for a player, is it? Um, yes. Uh, yes, to a certain extent. And I, I think you also need an element of luck, Joe, as well. Because, um, you know, people forget they're human beings. And when, whenever you move job, you move country, you move culture, you move language, you move your family... You know, you need a bit of luck to be able to settle and get the right feel. Um, you know, and there's so many stories about clubs, uh, players moving within the same league, you know, and it just doesn't quite work for them. I remember Fernando Torres moving from Liverpool to Chelsea for 50 million, was it, at the time? Yeah, yeah. You know, he's outstanding for Liverpool. He's in the same league, both big clubs with high expectations to win games and, to, and trophies, and yet didn't hit off for him at Chelsea. Now, what? why is that? He doesn't become a bad footballer. It's just, you know, for one reason or another, the system, the culture, the, the coach, the player, whatever, it doesn't quite work. So you do need a little bit of luck um, that the player fits, hits the ground running um, and, and you know, can, can work to the potential that you'd want them to do. Um, I mean, it's changed now that there's more uh, data and analysis involved in decision making. But at the time, we didn't really have any uh, uh, meaningful numbers or data that we would use other than getting through the games and getting through the, the DVDs. We, we, we turned one of the, the, um, the cupboards, if you like, into uh, we called it the Shire. But, you know, it was it, we had six or seven cinema seats in there. We put some boxes in that basically with satellite TV from all around the world, subscribe to these satellite TV channels to record games. So Lee Darnborough every day before he went home would set up the video boxes and record 12 games. Um, and we just built a library of games um, that we recorded on hard DVD disc um, and built up. And that, the, sh the Shire was the where we'd go and watch players and games and they'd go, Tony, I think we found one. Come and look at this one. Um, you know, we'd, we'd watch the players and of course, you know, backed up by getting out to watch live games as well. But that, that's how we did it. So say Gonzalo Yara, for example, playing in Chile, that's how you found him, is it? But by yeah, it initially with these DVDs. Yeah, so it would have been, I think, again, I think Tony Spearing was the one for him. I think Tony saw him playing for Chile, I think in Toulon. Tony used to go to the Toulon tournament, which is the under 21, under 22 tournament um, every year. And Tony first saw Gonzalo playing in Toulon, I think, um, for Chile. Um, yeah, look, he's, he's a, we like him. He's a good one. So we tracked him. We'd pick up some games for the Chile national team, for Colo Colo. Whenever he was in Europe, I, I vaguely remember Chile playing in Denmark because our Danish scout went to watch him as well. And I remember the phrase, uh, don't sign him tomorrow, sign him today, was one on his scouting report. Um <laughs> And so then consequently, you know, there was a, there, there was a space we needed that position. Um, and I flew over to Colo Colo to get to Chile, to to Santiago to get the deal done. Um, amazing. So obviously so many other big names, Joseph Malumbo, Solomon Troy, Peter Rodden Wingy. Um, I don't know if you've got any stories about them you want to share, but also Claudio Jacob. I heard a, re I heard a rumor you broke in somewhere to watch him train or something. I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> I couldn't possibly tell you that without getting myself in trouble with the police. Oh, right. Okay. I'm sorry. Don't get <laughs> it wasn't a break. Every single, every single signing has got their own story. I mean, this is why it's such a brilliant job and fascinating career and great industry. You know, they've all got their own story. Odin Wingy was seen by Stuart White. First playing for Nigeria, I think at Loftus Road. I think he was playing for Nigeria against somebody at one of these internationals where they do a double header in England. So I think he played at QPR's ground and then somewhere else. 
Um, he was playing in Russia at the time, which was difficult for us to get out and watch games. So we played, saw him playing for the national team. We thought we'd done a loan deal. Um, the club changed their chief exec and said, no, we'll only sell him. So we ended up having to pay one and a half million euros for him, which again, was a brilliant deal. But we wanted to do loans. We did on that one, on that one, Dan, I remember when Odom Wingy signed. So I think it was on a Friday evening. It got confirmed. He played on the Saturday and scored the winner on in his Sunderland. debut. Yeah. When you're when you're watching something like that from the box at the Hawthorns, is that like have you got like a warm feeling in your stomach? Or is that you've done <laughs> well, a really good deal. I, I wasn't. I was in Germany watching another game. Oh really? I remember being in Germany because uh, we did the deal and I flew out on the Friday morning because we'd agreed it with Peter and his agent and the paperwork was being done. It got lodged and except for I'd flown out because we were still in the transfer window. And I'd gone out and I, and I remember I was at a game in Germany and I was checking my phone, um, the uh, the scores, and it was nil-nil against Sunderland and it was late, wasn't it? It was 80-odd yes, minutes. Yeah. And it came through uh, W Bear one Sunderland nil, Odin Wingy 83 or something. And it's just like, uh, they must have thought I was an idiot sat there in the crowd, wherever I was. I'm like, yes! <laughs> <laughs> so not only win the, I think it was the opening game of the Premier League season. Um, maybe it's the second game, can't remember. But anyway, yeah, massive buzz, massive buzz. Winning the game for your team and a player that's just come through the door, getting the winner on his day. It doesn't get much better than that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they're, yeah, they're all interested. I remember doing Peter's deal and then Peter thought that we, what we were giving him was net, which is what you negotiate in Russia, but it's gross. So we had a, a problem at the death because he was realised, he's a bright guy, Peter, he realised that it was gross, not net. So he was going to lose, you know, 40% of this in tax. So we had to do have a handshake that if he scored the goals to keep us up that year, we'd redo his contract, which he did and we did. Um, so he said, no, I'll come, look, I'll come, I want to come now. But, um, you know, he, he actually came for less money than he was earning in Russia when you, when you factor in tax. Um, and then Claudio Jakob, yeah. So Claudio was um, a player that we tracked for a period of time. He was running his contract down. So the last six months of his contract, he wasn't playing. So uh, his club side in Argentina, uh, I'm pretty sure it's Argentina Juniors, but I, I'd, I'd, have, I'd have to check. They... Um, they weren't playing him because he's running his contract down. So, you know, it's a bit of a standoff. Um, and I, I wanted to see him. Um, so not only meet the lad, but also see him. And I couldn't see him play. So I had to find a way of seeing him train. Um, so uh, I wanted to see him physically. How did he move? What did he look like? Um, Etc. So I managed to find a way to watch him training. That's uh, that's, all, that's all I can say. <laughs> Sounds a bit Bielsa, this. <laughs> Um, in so, so income is amazing. How much of your job was retaining players, fending yeah. off interest once they've done well? Yeah, so that's the same. So redoing uh, new contracts. Um, so you know, James Morris and Chris Brunt, for example, were both signed before I started as sporting and technical director, but both of them would have got would have done new deals with them, with Jonas Jonas Olsen. Um, you know, pretty, pretty much all the players that you saw got new, new deals. So that was a, that's part of the role. You know, it's it's not only bringing new players in but it's trying to recontract existing players or sell existing players by the way as well that's the other part of the role just um because we well, I know we're getting on but I just want just finally for me I just ask you about the other managers you worked with Roberto Di Matteo Roy Hodgson don't just ban them in as one but how how were your relationships with them were they always sort of open to your to your role and what you were, how you were trying to help them well yeah, I've been lucky to work with some really good people and I'm still in touch with all of them so I sent Roy a, a message the other day because obviously he's, he's had his, his award from the Queen um, mm. Robbie, um, I'm still in touch with, 
went to his housewarming party after he departed from West Brom. Um, and also with Tony, uh, my, my, my current role with Brighton, you know, we, we let, sent him two lone players this summer, Jean-Paul Van Heck and Rita Kedra, because I knew yeah. he'd look after them and they've both done well, but, you know, I knew he'd look after them and he was a good man. So, you know, all, all of those people, uh, really good relationship with all three I think you better ask them as well Steve Clark as well you know Steve had a really good relationship and still speaks to on a regular basis so I think the fact that I'm still in touch with all four of them um would 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 uh, would mean that you know we've still got uh, we had a good relationship but I, I always come from a position of support you know my job is to try and help the manager stay in a job and succeed so um, you know, if, if I can help get player recruitment right, if I can get an academy right where we've got young players coming through the system, if the medical and sports science department is right so that those players are on the training pitch and on, on the uh, uh, the match pitch on a more regular basis and recover quickly, more quickly if they do get injured, then that surely helps the manager. And if I can do all those and, and that, you know, be a confidant at times and help manage up with the board and the relationships there, particularly during sticky times, um, and be a, a pillar of support when things are not going quite so right. I, I, th I think that's very much my job and that's what I would try and do. And I try and do it with honesty and integrity. And ultimately, it is going to fail at certain times. You know, I always talk about um, you know, whether it's Brighton of Albion, whether it's West Bromwich Albion, that if a manager, and this is the ironic thing, if a manager wins too many games, they move on. Mm. If he doesn't win enough games, they move on. So ultimately, you know, and you get both scenarios there that, you know, if, if you know, Grand Potter wins 10, 15, 20 games on the trot or whatever, then bigger and better come and get him. It's the same at West Brom. You know, England came and got Roy. Celtic came and got Tony. Mm -hmm. And if they don't win enough games, then ultimately their job's uh, at, at risk or goes. So you're pretty much going into the relationship knowing at some stage it's going to go, it's going to break but you do everything you can during that particular time to try and su support them. Because again, similar to Odin Wingy scoring the winner, it gives me great pleasure that Roy Hodgson left West Bromwich Albion to go and become England manager. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that gives me great pleasure that uh, we've helped a manager succeed and take, take a, you know, a step that he'd always wanted to take in his life. Amazing. Thank you. Is that back to you now, Johnny? Is it back onto me? Just, just on the back of that, that section, just a, a couple of questions I'd like to sort of add in, Dan. You say there when you sort of, you wanted to look at how sort of Claudio Yakov moved and what he was what he was like when you're sort of standing there watching from wherever you were watching around a training pitch in, in Argentina. Are you, are you, do you think straight away, yes, he's the one for West Brom? He is there like that that switch in your head that where you know that that he he can do a job because in hindsight we all know he was a wonderful footballer for West Brom. Yeah, um, poor. Do you know what I think, Johnny? If I'm being really honest, I think there's always an element of doubt. I think I think there's always that. Um, very rarely do you see a player um, where you go, oh, my goodness me, absolutely nailed on, can't fail, you know, absolutely brilliant. Uh, people might tell you that, that, but it, it you know, not not from my yeah. point of view. There's always, you know, I remember with Claudio was actually, what was he mobile enough? That was the doubt for the Premier League because he, he wasn't, um, he wasn't particularly agile and mobile and have that blistering turn of pace. Um, now, positionally, perhaps you don't need it as much in that position, but the Premier League is a really physical league. So you just don't, wondered whether when the spaces opened out, whether he, he would be mobile and, and athletic enough to be able to defend the spaces in midfield. But as a tackler, uh, you know, and, and, and keeping the ball simple and tactically aware, yes. 
So the big thing for me was whether I thought he would be able to move well enough in the Premier League. And uh, he was able to, without being particularly athletic, he was able, because of his tactical awareness, be able to be able to do it. But I don't I don't think there's many players where you, you just look at them and go, oh, 100%, you know, he's for us. I mean, I, mean, I tell you what, this this is <laughs> this sums up the, the, the role, I guess. So um, when Roy was manager, it, 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 we were looking for a centre-back. And I remember taking him to Holland to watch a centre-back. I won't name the centre-back. And uh, we ended up having to stay overnight, drove to the game. Uh, on the way back, the, the player hadn't done so well and Roy didn't like him. And Roy was like, no, no good, Dan. You know, basically, you wasted two days of my time. And <laughs> it's like, not good enough. And that comes with the territory. So the, the lad had a bad game and Roy didn't think that he had got the attributes. Anyway, not long later, um, I took him to Ipswich Norwich to go and watch Gareth McCauley. Mm. And Macaulay was playing for Ipswich. Um, it was at Portman Road against Norwich. Um, Norwich were going for promotion. I think Ipswich was going for playoffs. So it was a big game late in the season. And I remember taking Roy down there and saying, look, you know, this lad's free. He's never played in the Premier League, but we quite like him, Roy. So I went down there, um, got two seat, seats in the box because Dave McNally was CEO at Norwich. So we managed to get two seats. And obviously Roy's a, a big name as well. So we managed to get two seats in the box. So you're in the box watching the game fresh from coming from Holland about three weeks before from a centre-back that Roy sort of tore a strip off me a bit, really saying he was no good. Anyway, Ipswich lost 5-1. Grant Holt, who, who Macaulay was marking, oh, yeah. scored a hat-trick. Mm. And I, I think Gar- Macaulay scored an own goal as well. So you, I'm sitting in the box knowing that I've got to drive Roy back four hours from Ipswich to to uh, to the Midlands. You can't talk in the box because obviously people can overhear. And I'm absolutely mm. dreading this car journey. I'm like, oh, my goodness me, I'm going to get it now. You know, I'm going to have four hours of scolding. <laughs> Got in the car, never forget it. He went, yeah, he's good in him, Dan. Yeah, well done. I like him. Mark's a bit tight, but I think I can get something out of him. And there you go. <laughs> we, signed, we signed him on a free, and he was an absolute legend for the club. Pro- probably yeah, yeah. one of the best signings yeah, yeah, during yeah. my time. Yeah, and just you obviously go for, go for a lot of players that maybe don't come off. Is there any sort of memorable ones you can remember from Albion that maybe didn't come off and went on to do quite well else, elsewhere? Yeah. Nemanja Matic was one. I went I went over to... Um, uh, where was he playing? I think it was he playing in Slovenia. Went over and watched him and um, he was going to be 200,000 euros. This would have been pre when he went first went to Chelsea, would it? Dan? Yeah, and then ben, he went... Did he go to Benfica and then back to Chelsea? Um, but he's a, he's a young... I remember sort of quite a stiff mover, but... Uh, and we had George Thorne at the time, um, who was a similar position, uh, similar age. Um, and for one reason or another, we didn't do it. Um, but it was one you say, oh, yeah, you know, liked him. But, um, you know, di- di- didn't quite, quite, I can't remember why we didn't quite get the deal done or didn't do it. But he was one that, you know, you talk about the ones that, that got away and went on to do great things. Um who else did we have? Oh, I'm sure there's loads, but you know, he, he's one that definitely springs to mind that you know we, we perhaps could have done and uh, and and didn't. I, I, there's another one. Lewandowski was was another one where um, a lot of English clubs were looking at him in the Polish league and wondering whether he had the physicality, uh, us included. Um, and of course, he's gone on to Germany to be an outstanding world class striker. So again, it wasn't one where we go, no, definitely he's not good enough, but it was one that. You know, he was he was on our radar and we were sort of sniffing around for a period of time. So, yeah, there'd be plenty of those that we got wrong or didn't do. Did you go in for Lewandowski or was it just like a watching brief no. at the time? No, no, we, ne- we never ended up putting a bid in for him. Um, 
you know, they, they, we'd all got these stories that, you know, oh, I, so-and-so recommended him and we could have got him or whatever. We've all got those stories, but we never went hard in. And we're, I'm not sure we'd have got him anyway, to be honest. But, you know, he's one that uh, we thought might be doable, you know, coming out of Poland into the Premier League at the time. Um, but uh, for one reason or another, we, 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 we didn't end up doing it. And of course, he, I think, did he go straight to Dortmund or when did he go? Where did he go? I can't remember where he went he from Poland. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, look, I mean, he, he he probably would have chosen them anyway. So I'm not saying that we we had him done and backed out or he turned us down. But certainly was, there was an interest both him and Matic that you think, yeah, it's interesting. They've gone on and had obviously world class careers. Yeah. And just just briefly, just looking at a few of the sort of the seasons you had. So you said you're coming in the in the December 2007. So Albion got promoted that season, and then your sort of first full season, I'm guessing, Dan would have been that Premier League campaign under Tony. Um, when Albion yeah. had gone up, so what? What are your sort of abiding memories from that season? We've recently had Paul Robinson on the on the podcast, and we spoke about you know I'm an Albion fan, so I can remember Albion played some terrific football that year. Maybe lacked a little a little bit of cutting edge in terms of a, a, a sort of proven goal scorer, but Albion in a lot of plaudits that season. I remember I remember Tony Mowbray's team got clapped off the pitch in the final game of the season. I think they lost mm-hmm. to Liverpool. But yeah. what, what, what's your abiding memory from that season? Because they played some really good stuff that campaign. Yeah, it's a big learning curve for me because that was my first season, you know, my first summer. And I think we got the balance of the squad wrong, um, you know, and I've got to take responsibility for that. Uh, obviously, you know, all the signings were with with Tony. Um, but we signed and we signed quite a few and and relatively for, for West Bromwich Albion that summer spent a fair bit of money. Um, and I, I think we had, so for example, I remember looking at it and, go, and thinking, the, the balance of the midfield was wrong. And even though each individual player, you'd say, yeah, really good player. So we had Greening, uh, Corrin, Morrison, Valero. Um, so they, there's four, five foot, nine, ten technical ball playing midfield players, right? And so all of them, you say, all of them say, yeah, good player. But then you've got, you got Morrison, you've got Tashira, you had, who else did we have in there at the time? Um, but th- what we didn't have was uh, a Claudio Jacob, uh, a Paul Shana, you know, someone with a bit of physicality that maybe could break up and a bit more defensive acumen. And that's not being disrespectful to any of those players, but they were all similar technical, take the ball, offensive type players. Um, so consequently, I think the balance was wrong there. I think the balance was wrong. With, we, we, we tried to take uh, younger players that didn't have Premier League experience with a view that we could generate some value um, and probably took too many uh, and then went away from the nucleus of a team that knew what it took to stay up in the Premier League. Um, so even though Borja Valero is a great example because Borja was a really, really good footballer, but we got relegated. Um, we ended up having to loan him into to Villarreal. No, what did we loan him to? Anyway, we ended up loaning him back to Spain and then selling him that year uh, to Villarreal, was it, for €8 million. I think we paid about five or six the following summer after having loaned him. He then moved to Fiorentina for another €8, €10 million Mm -hmm. and got in the Spanish national team. So no one can tell me that Borja Valero isn't a good footballer and wasn't a good player. He was just the wrong fit for the balance of the team and the situation we were in, which was fighting relegation which means that you probably don't have as much of the ball against certainly against the top half teams, et cetera, et cetera. So it's just, it was a big lesson of getting the balance right and what's needed to actually get you out of the division or keep you in the division. So the following year, we went well, we came back up again and then signed Paul Shana on a free, Stephen Reid, 
Um, we signed, uh, I think Ben Foster came in that year as well and just signed, uh, Keith Andrews came in in the January, just signed three or four players that knew the league, brought a bit more physicality and knew what it took to win and, and stay up in that league. Um, as well as, you know, we, we then had uh, Mozer and Brunty and Jonas and people like that, all of which had had a further year's experience in the Premier League. So the balance of the team was better that year, although maybe the players weren't quite as exciting. And there's, 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 you know, that's that's part of the job. That's what you have to try and get right. Yeah, in the, in that, I remember going into the January of that season, and West Brom were desperate to sign a, a centre forward, which I imagine was was that a difficult January because I think we bought Jay Simpson in on loan at, in the end from Arsenal, um, a very young centre forward. Yeah. I'm guessing that was was that quite a busy January trying to get a, a striker in. You know, we all know strikers are good strikers are so a that, premium. So that was Tony's. Year last season was it Tony Mowbray? Yes, last in the Premier League. Oh blimey! Do you know what? I, I, we would have had Bednar. Would we have Kev Phillips? No, I think he would have gone by that point. Yeah, I think Phillips had gone. Yeah, Ishmael Miller, but I know he had a very injury-ridden season that year. Ishmael Miller. Yeah, Ishmael Miller. Yeah. Uh, and then Jay Simpson came on loan. That's right. Yeah. Centre forwards are difficult to get the best of times, let alone in January. Yeah. You know, and if you're you're in the relegation zone, players don't really want to come to you. Uh, certainly not on a permanent basis. It's tricky. It's tricky. I've got to say, I can't. I can't. I really can't remember the ins and outs of that particular window. Maybe I've wiped it from yeah. my memory. <laughs> Just on January, is it, are they more difficult, Dan, in your role? You know, yeah. Than, than, than summer windows. You know, we all yeah. see prices are sort of hiked up in January. Is that is that the case? Yeah, they're more difficult because um, the selling club doesn't really get an opportunity to replace because you, you've got such a limited time. It's the middle of the season. There's games going on. Um, players have got to come in and hit the ground running rather than have a pre-season with you. Um, yeah, it's uh, it, it's probably like trying to fix the plane mid-flight r- rather than fixing the plane when you're on the runway and you've got a bit of time to fix it. Yeah. Um, before the next flight so it's uh yeah january january is difficult for a number of reasons so that you're in mid-season as i said there's no real time to replace from the the selling club and it's a really short window so that that's why it's you know pricey and um and difficult yeah so the following obviously how we went down that summer so it was a bit not a rebuild but you know new manager come in obviously tony mobe went to celtic Roberto Di Matteo come in. What? How did? Were they sort of similar types of? They had similar types of sort of philosophies. They'd like to play good football. Were they sort of very different to work with, or or, or similar characters? Yeah, they're all. They've all been really different. I have to say, Re- really different characters. But I really like them all. Um, R- Robbie was perhaps a little bit more laid back. Um, he was um, probably a bit more defensive minded than Tony. Um, you know, and an influence from a, a, Italian, uh, obviously, you know, from his background. Um, so perhaps put a bit more emphasis on the defensive structure. Um, and then we were lucky again, back to Jeremy Peace, that we didn't have to sell. So what we were able to do as a club is keep hold of the players that we wanted to keep hold on of in order to try and help get us back into the Premier League. So I keep going back to the Morrisons and the Brunts of this world, you know, obviously who were outstanding championship players and good Premier League players, but enabled us to get back at the first time of asking. Um, and uh, and then from that moment onwards, so certainly, um, you know, the time I was there was, was to stay in the Premier League for a number of years. Yeah, and then you built, you obviously went up um, under, under Di Matteo. Then there was the season in the Premier League. I had some good results early on. I remember sort of being 3-0 up at Arsenal and and it looked like, you know, 
after a couple of years of, you know, Albion get the boing boing tag, don't they? The yo-yo tag. Um, looked like it was going to go, you know, they were going to do well. And then obviously results turned and and you sort of ch- ch- turned to, to Roy to to sort of keep West Brom up. In, a, in terms of a decision like that, Dan, from your point of view, how much influence do you have? And, and, and was that particular decision difficult to sort of move Roberto on and, and, and bring in Roy Hodgson? Yeah, it was really difficult because, you know, Rob, Robbie's a good good person, was good to work with. Um, what we've done at the start of the season is set a target where, you know, 38, 40 points keeps you up. You know, that, that was the target. And because we'd started so well that you know, Robbie was ahead of target for a long period of time. I think we went fourth with a 2-2 draw at Old Trafford in October or something like that. I mean, it, we, we had a, a, an amazing start. And then we went, I think we won two in 15, um, you know, and started to drop, 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 drop. And the confidence was coming out of the team. Um, and it was a time where you just thought, look, if, if we don't freshen it and don't change, then, you know, we're probably going to get relegated. And that was the call. And sometimes you get those right. Sometimes you get those wrong. Um, that particular time we got it right and Roy came in and, um, you know, and sometimes a new voice and some new energy, it gives other players, players maybe haven't been playing an opportunity to play, et cetera, and new manager bounce and all that. And obviously Roy is a really experienced coach to, to get some structure and organisation. Um, just that felt it, it was our best chance of staying up. Would, would Robbie have kept us up? I don't know. No one will ever know that. Um, but ultimately it turned out to be, uh, a good decision because Roy did, uh, mm-hmm. and we managed to, to stay up on that league. But those decisions are incredibly difficult because you, you know, people are dealing with human beings and people's careers and all those things. You don't take them lightly, and you've got to try and shut out the outside noise because people get emotional, supporters get emotional, we all get emotional about the results of our team, you know. And if you get beaten, you know, three or four, or you haven't won for a period of time, everybody thinks, oh, it's the right thing to do. Is he's, he's not good enough? Change the manager, change the player. Whereas you try and do it a bit more objectively and obviously, you know, from, from from within. And we were ahead of target for a long time, you know, and Robbie had won games in the Premier League. That squad had won games in the Premier League. They don't become, you know, uh, poor overnight. So it was trying to support and try and fix it and try and help uh, find a way of winning. We, we beat Blackpool 3-2 and I, I thought maybe we'd turn the corner. I think Oden Wingy got a couple and... I thought we'd, we'd turn the corner and we'd start winning again and we, and we didn't. And then we got we got beat 3-0 at Man City, I remember right. I think we were 3-0 down at half time. Um, and it, it was just a feeling. It just felt that we, we needed a change um, and, and, and made it. And, and Roy came in and we stayed up and on we went. In that case, have you identified sort of Roy Hodgson as your sort of target at that time? Or was there other sort of names in the frame? Or, or was, it, did you turn, was he in the mind already? Yeah, so... And that this is a, this is an incredibly difficult part of the job because if you're not prepared for your manager to leave, you're not doing your job. Mm-hmm. But also, you don't want to feel like you're being disrespectful or unfaithful. In fact, you know, and you're courting others while somebody's in situ. So it's a really fine balance between knowing the market, knowing who's out there, knowing who might be able to come, knowing who'd be a fit. Because you can't just make the change and go, okay, we've sacked manager X. So who's coming in? Well, I've got no idea. Well, why why did you sack manager X then? You know, you've you've got to have an idea of what a replacement <clears throat> looked like. But we didn't speak to anybody um, until um, you know, obviously Robbie left. I think it was a Sunday, um, and then you know the chairman said to me, Dan, I, you know, we're obviously we're mid-season. Um, you know, we're in a difficult situation. I, I'd like to have someone in place sat in the stands at the West Ham game, um, which ended up being a three-three draw. Uh, and so I had a week met. 
um, we, we, we always had a running criteria basically to, for the chairman. You know, what do you want? What type of coach? What type of manager? What it's, do they need to be? A, had they need to have been a one? Do they need to, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, we had a, a framework. There was four or five people in the uh, in the running. Um, I, I did first phase interviews with all of them that first week and then got two or three in front of the chairman on the Thursday or Friday. We did the deal on the Friday night and Roy was sat next to me watching the West Ham game on the Saturday. Yeah, and obviously stayed up. Had a successful season the, the following year. Um, you know, what are your memories of, of working under Roy? You know, you've mentioned a couple there, the Gareth McCauley and the, the failed Holland trip and stuff. Was that a, a you know, memorable time for you at West Brom? Oh, yeah, I love uh, all four. You know, I've got to say, I love working with all four. Ro- love working with Roy as well. Um, a br- brilliant coach. Uh, really, really good man manager. You know, really, uh, he just knew when to speak to a player, when not to speak to a player, when to take the foot off the gas, when to, you know, um crank the pressure up a little bit um but really good tactically really uh really astute was really clear what he wanted from his teams and and real detail um in in how he wanted his team set up so the players know their jobs for sure you know the players know their jobs with Roy um and he was a gentleman you know he's great company socially um when you know when he relaxed you go out for dinner or a glass of wine or something had some brilliant stories some great life experiences multilingual worked all around the world um yeah great great company and a, and a really good person to work with but they're all so different johnny so, so different with, uh, with with Roy, you know we always see him you know he's this you know this older older gentleman who's vastly experienced and uh, as you said a really really nice bloke and but you mentioned there he sort of tore a strip off you for the for the sort of the, on the Holland trip and I, I don't know if you've seen it. I remember there's a clip after I think West Brom had, had beat Bolton and he proper snapped at a match of the day report <laughs> and swore at them. Did he have that? I'm guessing he probably. I probably all managers have got that in their locker. Um, is that something you're sort of privy to from a technical director point of view in terms of managers, yeah. or is that very much kept behind closed doors? Yeah, it, it, I, you know, I, th- I think um, most leaders. Uh, have, have a moment you know they'll show their teeth when they need to some do it more so than others um but roy, roy you know if he wasn't happy with something he'd let you know um and he'd let the players know and he'd let me know and you know if it was in my field or you know whoever it was he'd let you know um and it and it was good because he just made sure that your standards were high because you know you wanted to get the right player or the right pre-season trip or the right hotel when they're staying away or the right standard of food at the canteen whatever it made the right standard of playing surface and training and that's another thing for him you know he just wanted it right and he wanted it done properly and he wanted it done professionally and there's nothing wrong with having high standards and his standards were really really high and if you didn't meet his standards he'd let you know um which was great you know no no problem I'm guessing it was towards the end of that season. Albion had done very well, sort of mid-table finish. When was it? I think it was the England interest came in the back end of that season. Was it Dan for for Roy and and can you remember that time at all? You know how that sort of all came about. Yeah, I can remember it. I was sat with Jeremy Peace at a hotel in London. We were having a meeting about targets or an update. Again, can't remember exactly what the meeting was about, but I would go and see Jeremy uh, down in London on a monthly basis. Um, and his phone went, and um, it was uh, Dave Bernstein from the FA. Um, just saying, look, you know, we'd like to speak to you about uh, about Roy joining us, and um, and it just moved really quickly from there, really quickly. Um, I think we were playing Aston Villa that weekend. Was that our second last game of that season? Third last game of that season? Um, 
we might have managed to keep it under wraps for one more game and then uh, the Bolton game was that his last game Roy? That's it, yeah I think yeah. so yeah by, by that time I mean it moved really really quickly and of course for Roy it's it's the pinnacle isn't it to be able to 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 manage your country um and look, I know West this is a podcast for West Bromwich Albion fans and and you know the pinnacle for them is is their club of course it is I understand that you know as supporters you're very proud of your club and rightly so it's a fantastic football club but as a as a manager who's worked for a number of different clubs, um, you know, some really high profile ones in Italy and England, as well as national, to, to actually have the opportunity to manage a country doesn't come along very often. And so you could almost, you know, you can't blame Roy for wanting to have an opportunity to have in a go as England manager. And he'd, he'd earned that from what he'd done in the game and across a number of different countries. So we always knew that he was going to take it. And then it was, right, let's try and just manage the, the rest of the season the best we can, which is only a couple of games, to be fair. And then obviously we were then into, we had a number of weeks. It was very different to when we appointed Roy, when yeah. the chairman had given me a week. We had a number of weeks then to find the next manager of uh, head coach, sorry, I should say, of, of West Bromwich Albion, which, um, which was Steve Clark. When when uh, Jeremy Peach puts that phone down in that hotel, he, is he sort of thinking straight away, right? Start start looking because you know we can't stand in Roy's way, you yeah. know, like you said, with a job like that. Yeah, and again, if I remember, I think Roy he'd only signed an eighteen month contract. So we were in the process of discussing with Roy about extending and staying on for next year, and he'd always had a gentleman's agreement. Look, no no problem. You don't need to feel that you need to give me a contract early, etc. You know, we were discussing about him staying on the following, and he would have stayed on. You know, he was happy, enjoyed it, he would have stayed on. But there was no point even going into, well, look, if we give you a bit more of this, it's just it's just not uh, a job you can compete with. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, uh, yeah, pretty much knew that. I, I think I knew that Roy would want to take it. Obviously, it was down to him. We'd had to speak to him about it. But um, as I said earlier in, in the podcast, that one of my jobs is to make sure I've got succession planning list. And, and that is for right backs. It's for centre forwards. It's for academy managers. It's for head of medical. And it's for first team managers. My job is to understand the market and who's out there and, and who would come in and enhance whichever club you know I'm working for, which are, you know all, all of us sporting directors, technical directors, directors of football, whatever the roles are, we've got to make sure that we've got people in the frame that um, should something happen to player X or member of staff Y, that we've got a succession planning list. And it was the same with coaches and managers. Yeah. And as you said, Steve Clark came in. What was um, what was that period like? Were, were you looking at multiple managers? Because I think I don't think Steve Clark had, had a had a, a senior management job, you know, he had a very good reputation as a coach, at, uh, I think, yeah. at Liverpool and Chelsea under, under Jose Mourinho. But was that not a gamble, Dan, was, but was that one that where you'd, you know, what, what were the reasoning behind that? Because I imagine there were some probably experienced managers who would have jumped at the chance to, to take over West Bromwich Albion at that time. Yeah. So, again, Jeremy was really clear that wanted a coach. Um, he felt that the club was structured in a way that, um, you know, the, the recruitment, the academy, the medical um the the media and comms at the time you know the club was in it in, in quite a um stable position you know the board himself um and wanted somebody who would be really good on the grass that could get the best out of the players that we've got develop young players and get the best out of the players that we've got um and steve came as a reputation as an outstanding coach uh, and it is an outstanding coach um and i think in that first season finished eighth i think we finished eighth didn't we that year oh yeah um, and yeah, we had some some good a- acquisitions. You know, he was instrumental in getting Lukaku on loan, for example, because of his Chelsea contacts. So Steve and I had driven down to Stamford Bridge to to pitch to Romelu about the you know about him coming to West Brom, put a presentation together, because he had two or three other Premier League clubs that were were in the running for him at the time. Um, and and Rom came to us. Obviously, you know, a big part of that would have been Steve and and scored 15, 18 goals that season. I think it was. 
um, you know, and really helped us finish in the top eight. We had a really exciting front line during Steve's tenure that, that, that first year. And then I left at the end of that year. Yeah. So in terms of on that season, so I think Shane Long came in as well, didn't he? And a few other few other players. Um, what, 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 what are your sort of memories of that campaign, Dan? Yeah. So Shane, Shane had come under Roy. Under Roy, sorry. Yeah. Shane had come under Roy because I remember Roy really wanted Shane. Um, we pushed hard to get Shane. Um, so I, oh God, you're testing me now. I think we had our front three. We had Lukaku, we had Odin Wingy, we had Long. Obviously, Brunty and Morrison could both play in advanced positions. Um, and I also think we had Marcus Rosenberg, which was one that didn't yeah. work for us. Yeah. Um, but he came in with yeah. quite, a, quite a reputation because he'd done quite well for Sweden, I believe. Yeah, and again, I, I said this earlier in the podcast about you never know, you know the fit. So Marcus had played in Spain, in Germany, in Sweden. In, so certainly in Germany and Spain, played in you know two of the top, five leagues, scored goals, scored goals at international level, came with great character references. And by the way, he's a great human, great professional. Uh, obviously, Jonas knew him as well, uh, was a free. We couldn't believe our luck when we got him. Um, and it just didn't work for him. And yet in training every day, he trained hard. He was a good finisher. He got goals, but just it couldn't quite click for him in a, in a West Bromwich Albion shirt. Um, got off to a bad start. I think he missed. I remember he missed a penalty. I think in a in a cup game where it went to penalties. Um, I'm pretty sure that was you know again early before he could get a run go in and get some goals and it just didn't work um, for for Marcus. And yet he was a good player and a good person, a great fisher. He then went on um, and scored goals in the Champions League after he left the Albion. Mm. So you back to human beings. Just sometimes it doesn't quite click. But we had a, an exciting front line, you know, and we, we had some good players in there and uh, we were able to defend with Jonas and Corley and Fozzy and goal. And so we you know, not only were we defensive resilient, but we also had a, a, a cutting edge and uh, had, a, had a really good side. That was probably my favourite year from a, from watching the team point of view. Yeah. And just, just before I pass it back on to Joe briefly, as we sort of get to the end of the, the podcast, looking back on them years, Dan, you know, academy manager, you know, coach as well, and then technical director what is there are there any standout moments for you you know ones you players you're particularly proud of you bought in or moments you're particularly proud of when you when you sort of reflect on your, your time at Albion oh blimey. I had such a wonderful time at the club you know I still go back as you know um and re- really feel welcomed when I go back uh, as, as a dad or a scout or you know whatever re- really feel welcomed uh, I had such a wonderful time at the club it's hard to put it uh, you know, there's Chris Wood and George Thorne's debuts mean a lot, you know, as, as uh, uh, Sido Berahino's debut and, you know, him coming in and scoring goals. I know Sido's another one that his career hasn't finished how, uh, as well as everybody would have thought, you know, how it started. Um, so those are good moments. Odin Wingy scoring on his debut. Um, Malumbu coming in. McCall, I there's, there's There's lots, but there's also lots that, you know, I'm not so proud of it. It didn't work. And there's players that, you know, be, you've been kind enough not to mention that, you know, could be deemed as as failures or a waste of money, you know. And and that's, you, you don't get, you don't get a, a, a technical director or recruitment department or whatever who's, who's been in it for a number of years. It hasn't got those players that haven't worked. You know, we, we all make mistakes. We all make uh, uh, decisions on players that don't work for any for for a reason either they weren't good enough we've got the wrong or they they weren't the right fit so there, there's loads relegation hurt me a lot um, you know I was really upset disappointed if I let the club down the supporters down Tony down the chairman down um, with that squad because we'd spent some money um, 
but but proud that we you know we got back up and stayed back up. I think maybe the first year that we stayed back up, I think we beat Villa. Um, I think we beat Villa two one. Is that right? Yeah, in order to who scored the winner, I think. That's I right. right, and I think we were down to ten men as well, were we? Um, anyway, Malumbu got the winner. Um, we beat Villa two one, and it got us to forty points, um, which was obviously the first time I'd experienced us staying in the league. Um, and it was that was that was a huge moment, um, and not because it was Aston Villa. And I know I remember saying at the time, you know. <laughs> I went home and celebrated by having a cup of tea, but and it wasn't because it was Aston Villa. That wasn't the point. The point was it was we got to 40 points and stayed in the league. And I just re- knew how important that was to the club and I suppose me professionally as well. And um, in order to, to to have another crack at the Premier League and the second year uh, after staying up um, equally hard, but uh, you know, hopefully would would be a bit easier for us. Joe, if you were trying to pick up, just briefly. Yeah, just, just one more. We always end with a quick fire game, but just one more question in terms of you talked about your pride at seeing like Odom goal, for example, when you see players you've signed them well. What was it like at Reading two weeks ago when you saw your boy come off the bench? <laughs> well, he came off the bench the first time, ironic, against Brighton in the FA Cup. Oh, of course, yeah. So I sat there working for Brighton as technical director, um, watching the game and my wife I said to her oh come Zach probably won't get on but come he's in the squad and she was watching him warm up and she nudged me and she goes oh my god he's coming on he's coming on and I wasn't watching I was watching the game so uh, you know watching like okay what are we trying to do what are they doing? and and West Brom were 1-0 up and Zach came on and before he'd even touched it there was a red card and West Brom were down to 10 men and so that was probably more bizarre having your son come on against you when you're yeah. technical director of the other team um, but then yeah get, going going then to watch him um and he, he i think he might have started with connor because Co- connor had a, a situation with his wife was about to yeah, give birth his first child, yeah. um and zach thought he might start so i thought no i'll come down to the game anyway and then he called me on the saturday morning he said oh connor's here so i'm not going to start and like, oh okay so <laughs> probably won't get on um don't tend to change defenders do you uh, and then connor um, went over on his ankle just before half time and he came on. So, yeah, really proud moment. It, it, he's worked so hard. He's been there since he's six um, and worked so hard to have that moment. So, yeah, it's a proud moment as a dad. He's just a better player than you were, wasn't he? Oh, sorry, Jim. Yeah, go on. He's Jeff. a better player than you were, is he? Oh, miles better. <laughs> <laughs> miles not high, though. That's not hard. <laughs> just on that, Dan, I know when we spoke, we, we were arranging this podcast, you were in the sort of in the away end with the, with the Baggies fans for uh, for that Reading game. I, I was uh, I was out, just sort of get spotted by any. Any Albion fans from your from your time at yeah, the club? I was in there with Zach's girlfriend. It was um, it was an experience, yeah, because it was the last okay. game of the season. So obviously the fans had their fancy dress on and were in good spirits. So uh, uh, it was fun. Put it that yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Well, thanks for that, Dan. We're, we're just we always been all we've had on so far is former players. So this will be a little bit with a little bit of a twist. We sort of ask me a few questions, sort of best player, you know, best manager to work with, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So and then at the end we have a little five-a-side game, which we'll, we'll sort of come on to. But just but looking back on your time at West Brom, I've just got written down here sort of best player. Sort of in that time, you know, who who stands out to you as the, the one that you brought in that you were sort of maybe most proud of or or sort of went on to have the best Albion career? Oh, my God. I, I'm, I'm just thinking of all the texts I'm going to get of any players that listen to this. I didn't hear, in particular, James Morrison, who's still at the club. I'm, <laughs> I'm definitely going to be getting a text off him. I would have to say... Oh, blimey. See, Lukaku obviously has gone on and had a fantastic career as a top player. So uh, 
Player-wise, pro- probably him. Um, value for money-wise, um, oh, blimey. You see, you go Malumbu, McCauley, Foster, people like that. But Odin Wingy as a player on his day was outstanding. So I'd, I'd probably have to say Lukaku was alone. Odin Wingy is a permanent. This is a really tough one to ask you, I think. Um, but best manager to work with? You'll probably get a lot of text messages for this as well. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I've got Tony, Robbie, Roy and Steve. Oh, that is tough. Right, I work with Roy in England as well. I'm going Roy. Uh, oh, that's such an unfair question. <laughs> that is an unfair question. <laughs> Steve, Tony, I'm really sorry. I'm really, only because I've worked with Roy twice. They're, they're, they're all really good. I'm going to go Roy. Yeah. Just on that, when you, you were with Steve Clark, obviously he went, I think he went to Reading and, and didn't have the, the greatest of spells. And went to Scotland, did really well with Kilmarnock and has now done exceptionally well with Scotland. Did you envisage him having such a, a very good managerial career at post-West yeah, Brom? Yeah, really, really good, Steve. Really good coach, yeah. Good person. Yeah, really good. Delighted he's doing so well. Yeah. Um, and then just this, this one question we always ask, who is the most sort of underrated player while you were at West Brom? We ask this to the players and they really struggle with this one. <laughs> I think Jonas Olsen. Yeah. And I think when I remember we're doing some stats and with something like with him in the team, it was 1.4 points per game. With him out of the team, it was 0.6 or something. You know, he was he was almost the glue. Uh, Paul Shana was another one that, again, with due respect to Paul, as, a, as an actual player, um, but when he played in the team... He actually helped the team function so much better. Um, McCauley's another one of those, I guess. But yeah, so, so, so pro- probably Jonas. Yeah, yeah. And then just finally, we, we, we put sort of our guests in this scenario. So you're a, you're a manager of a five-a-side team. You're going into a tournament. You can only pick players that have played for West Brom during your time at the club. Um, so either with it, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll sort of tweak it for you, being technical director. So players who were <laughs> either sort of played for Albion or players that you brought into Albion. So we give you the sort of the, the, the team and then we give you a couple of impact subs as well who could maybe come on and, and change the game for you. Um, right so, so, yeah, you can pick. You can you can have a goalkeeper and four defenders if you want to want to set up like that. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, you've got five players and two subs. Right, so I'm fostering goal. I'm going Lukaku and Oden Wingy is my front two. Um... Oh. You can see the cogs turning there, and there's a few going around, doesn't there? My goodness me, I'm trying to think of. Um, Could be having a lot of text messages after this as well. Yeah, maybe. I know, I know. I'm going for five aside. See, Graham Doran's really good five aside player. Technically, so good, does a could beat players. I, I think I might have him as a midfield player. Not Moz is going to kill me, isn't he? And <laughs> at the back, I'm going for see Nicky Shorey at five aside. I could see. Don't, you don't need to head it. Don't need yeah. a big player, do I? I need someone uh, who can manage the ball. Left sided might bring a bit of balance. Yeah, I might go. I might. I might go Nicky um, or Jonas. He's a winner. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you've got a couple of subs now, sort of impact subs you can bring on in the last uh, five minutes or so. Yeah, I've pre- James Morrison has made one of my teams now. Um, so M- Moza and who else could be an impact player for me? 
Uh, oh, sorry, this is not good podcast listening. I'm pausing so much, isn't it? So, just for, uh, just for no, podcast people listening. People want to know. Dan's really thinking about this. I, have, Dogs I are can really see his face. Like, He's putting a lot of thought. I am really thinking about this as well. Um, so, come on, who else from a five-a-side point of view? So, James Morrison. Um, I think... I think I'm going to bring Gira. I'm going to bring Zoltan Gira into an impact sub because Z- Z- Zoli for his energy, his enthusiasm, and finding a way to win. Zoli makes it. There we go. I think that might just be the best team. team so far, Joe. To, yeah. be to be honest, you've had sort of three so far. I've been good sides, but that's going to be up there, Dan. Thank you very much for your time. You've been very generous with your time. Um, you know, as we said, you're always sort of well thought of at West Brom. Still that connection there with you, with your boy, who hopefully we're going to see a lot more of next season. Um, and yeah, it's been a very insightful sort of hour and hour and a bit. So thank you very much for your time um, and all the best in the future. Thanks, thanks very much. Man. Good luck to the club and thanks for everyone for their support as well. I had a wonderful time there and the supporters are still still very good to me uh, as and when I do see them. Cheers, Dan. Thank you very all much. Right. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Bye bye.